Welcome to Wade Makers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And handling the board for us today is urban dweller John Dunn. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and DJ Spaceship will get you through to us. The one and only. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest has been making waves in cities across the country for 20 years. Peter Kageyama is best known as the author of For the Love of Cities, the love affair between people and their places. Peter lives in St. Petersburg and is former president of Creative Tampa Bay, a grassroots community change organization, and he's also co-founder of the Creative Cities Summit. He's a budding novelist who just published his first work of fiction, Hunter's Point, a detective novel set in the 1950s San Francisco, in which he explores organized crime, World War II, Japanese internment camps, and beat poetry. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, Peter, we'll get to your novel later in the yeah. show, but let's start with your work on urbanism. Sure. You have a law degree, so how did you make your shift from lawyer um, to urbanist? Yeah, uh, I like to say I fled the law. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm, a, I'm half Japanese, so an Asian parent, Japanese father. And Asian parents are kind of into this, like, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Two of those require being really good at math. And that was not my strong suit. So I guess I was sort of, I guess I thought, oh, I guess I got to be a lawyer. And so I had no particular affinity for it. I went through law school. I practiced law for a couple of years and I really hated it uh, <laughs> there. And I had an opportunity in uh, the mid nineties with my best friend from college to start an early web development shop. And thank goodness we did. And it was just sort of life changing. And thank you for a very good, uh, uh, you know, a liberal arts education can take you lots of places. Mm -hmm. So I don't regret Going to law school is good education, but I'm very happy not to be a lawyer. Well, where did that interest come from? Can you tell where that what sparked that the interest in cities and what makes cities interesting and so, vibrant? Yeah, interesting. That dates back about 20 years or so. And uh, at the time, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Richard Florida who was causing a lot of waves in terms of cities and the way people thought about economic development. And uh, a group of women brought him here for the first time, led by Deanne Roberts. Mm -hmm. And many of your listeners will remember Deanne Roberts. She's an absolute powerhouse for this community. An advertise, ran an advertising ran agency. Ran an advertising agency, but she was so much more than that. And um, May so, she rest in peace. May she rest in peace. Um, she was instrumental in bringing Richard here. And he started this conversation about the uh, importance of creative people in making economies. Now, up until then, it was all about, you know, factories and tax deals and land and, you know, the typical infrastructure there. But Richard's basically posited that uh, in the 21st century, uh, economies are going to be built around smart, creative, innovative people. Now, that seems really obvious now, but 20 years ago, that was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And so we got really excited about that idea and an organization was formed to sort of carry on that message and that was Creative Tampa Bay and I eventually became the president of that and that was the beginning of that journey into you know, into talking and thinking about cities. And what kind of work did Creative Tampa Bay do? Can you tell us what some of their biggest accomplishments were? Yeah, we were we were advocates. We produced a lot of content. Um, we produced several conferences. You know, one of the big things, we did several studies. I think maybe one of the most important ones was early on. It was called The Young and the Restless. It was a study about what young professionals 
wanted from their communities. And this, the report came back and it said, hey, they want opportunities. They want, um, they want a life outside of work. They want the opportunity to learn and be mentored, but they don't want to sit and wait on the bench in the junior chamber of commerce until they're 40 mm-hmm. uh, there. And again, now all this sounds pretty obvious, but when this report sort of came out and we handed it to the chambers who were pretty pretty traditional, you know, in mm-hmm. their thinking at the time. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. These young professionals want something different. And I think we birthed a lot of those reimagined young professional organizations around those ideas. So mm-hmm. I think we had, you know, we had an, uh, certainly a role in, in, in making that happen. Uh, well, one of the things that you talk about is is bottom-up community development. Yeah. So what does that mean? To explain what that, what that means, what does that look like? Sure. Well, let's start with the opposite, top-down. And most of our city-making, our place-making is sort of top-down. It's, right. it's local government, state, federal government, whatever it is, is, you know, is, is doing stuff, building stuff, maintaining things uh, there. And we tend to think about that as, you know, that, that's really important, and it absolutely is. But bottom-up stuff is the stuff that happens when you and I decide, hey, let's do something interesting in our, in our backyard, in our neighborhood, for our community uh, there. And we're not official city-makers. It's not technically our job, uh, but we feel compelled to maybe do something, to make something interesting happen that Maybe it's even for our own amusement. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong like with that. Like community gardens or like something. Like community gardens, like, you know, a, a mural. Let's get together. Let's do a, a backyard poetry festival. Let's mm-hmm. uh, let's repaint, you know, that ugly wall that's been there for 10 years. A front they, porch concert. A front that's a big deal exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? Uh, there. So all of those things absolutely contribute to the idea of placemaking, but they're not done by the official folks. It's not top down. It's this organic bottom up kind of stuff. Hmm. Well, what role does a, a, a city government have in uh, making that kind of thing happen yeah. or encouraging it? Yeah. Well, first of all, is recognizing that it's important, right? Um, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of folks, you know, get in government and they become the, they become the rules officials. Like, okay, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's like, and you know, so, and I understand the the rules are out there and rules and regulations exist. Okay, fine, but I think part of local government's role is facilitating and saying, wait a minute, uh, we need these folks engaged in this stuff. We we want them to to play because it's otherwise it's all on us. No, well, let's have that. And let's, let's make room for that and some accommodation and be a little bit flexible in the way we interpret things. Like, okay, yes, technically you need to do this, you know, this. Okay, we can work around that. We'll figure out a way to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And just not be squelchers. You know, right. you know, because the thing is, if if you if you're a you know a resident, a citizen who says who wants to do something, you and some friends get together and it's like you're really excited about this, and along comes the city and they step on it for whatever reason, that hurts. And right. it's like, man, why did I even bother? And they probably you know they probably retreat and they you know they become a little disillusioned with the whole process and they're less likely to try it again. And that's a real shame. You know, so yes, part of the, the, the biggest thing is don't be a squelcher and try to say yes. You know, you know, it's like, you know, you don't automatically say yes, but no is a lazy answer. And that, you know, it seems to be what, you know, a lot of bureaucrats fall back on saying, nope, can't do that. Well, yes, you can if you do this, 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 and this. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF, and our guest today is Peter uh, Kageyama. Um, he's an urbanist and author, and we're talking about um, right now his work in urbanism and what it means to live in a great city and make a great city. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. One of the things that you talk about is, and the title of the book is For the Love of Cities, which is about... A relationship with your city, loving your city. I would ask you um, uh, to give us a call um, if you're listening and um, tell us, what do you love about St. Petersburg? What do you love about Tampa? What do you love about Sarasota? What do you love about where you live? And I ask you, Peter, what is the difference between loving your city and having civic pride? Is that the same thing? Um, Yeah. 
Uh, I think they're certainly, you know, related, uh, that. But I think you used an important word that is not used enough when we talk about cities, and that's a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, we have these highly examined personal and professional relationships we spend lots of time grinding on. But most people don't stop and think about the relationship that they have with their place. And that is very real. You know, every day, you know, as you step out of your, your home, your apartment, whatever, you are engaged in a relationship with your neighborhood, with your city. Right. Uh, there and it can you know and an unexamined relationship can go stale it can go bad so we got to think about it in those terms and it's like okay what do you know what does our city do for us but then also ask ourselves that question say hey what can we do for our place to maybe make it to to enhance the relationship uh, a, a little bit um, as well and it's, you know I I'm a transplant I grew up in Ohio and I've lived yeah, here too. though for most of my life yeah. you know, you, grew, you grew up in Akron I'm from Canton yeah, so we're neighbors, neighbors. Yeah. it's like Tampa St. Um, Pete if you're exactly. from Ohio um, and I I feel sort of even though I've spent most of my life here in Florida I still feel like I'm from Ohio even though yeah. two-thirds of my life I've been in Florida um, and and I love Tampa. Mm-hmm. I love Tampa as weird as it is. I love Tampa. I love the Riverwalk. I love the river. Yeah. I love Bayshore. Um, I love St. Pete. I love the St. Pete beaches. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot that I, I love about the city. Ebor City. Can, Ebor City. Can you, are those the kinds of things you're talking about? Infrastructure or is it, yeah. is it deeper than that? Is it more um, an emotional level? It's that and, and a whole lot more. Um, there, you know, the you, you mentioned you love St. Pete, you love Tampa. And here's the thing about city love. Um, it's not monogamous. Right. I love Chicago. Yeah. You, in fact, I it shouldn't Paris. be monogamous. I would hope that you do love more than one place. Janet can be pretty promiscuous when it comes to cities. City. There you go. <laughs> All right. We, we go somewhere on vacation. It's like, hey, let's look up how you, how much it costs to buy a house here because yeah. maybe we should move sure, here. why not? <laughs> you know, but you said something interesting about being a transplant. And I, I like likewise, I have lived here in Florida longer than I uh, lived in Ohio. But there is something about where you sort of, you, you grow and you evolve into right. who you're going to be, you know, sort of that just period. And it, it does cement certain things. And I think there's a certain attitude about being a Midwesterner. Certainly, you know, we're, we're, we tend to be polite uh, there. You get, you know, your accent, mm-hmm. um, you know, and all that. But uh, so, yeah, that that really does matter. Um, but this idea of the, the relationship with place, um, that has sort of been central to my work is to get people to, to it's like, oh, wait, I, this is part of that. And you mentioned some great amenities in all that. And right. those are certainly part of the things that attract us to a place. But oftentimes it can also be people. It can be special events that sort of happen. It can mm-hmm. be a favorite time of year. It could be your favorite coffee shop where you go and you read, you know, uh, your book or you meet friends uh, there. And just because, and you watch the world pass, you know, by. And mm-hmm. that's a beautiful thing. So when you can relate to those types of things, those are the things that I I write about and I call them love notes. Okay. It's the relatively small thing that has an outsized impact in the way people feel about a place. So well, yeah. we, one of the things we love about our place now is that there's a restaurant that opened up just down the street from there us. It's go. a block away. We can, it's our neighborhood joint. The food is good. Everybody's yeah. friendly and we just love to go down there. It makes it makes me love Tampa more. Absolutely. You know, and, and you think about it, food is incredibly important. You know, when you ask somebody to go say, hey, let's uh, let's go to dinner. Let's go to lunch. Let's go have a beer or something like that. You're not really asking them to go eat. You're asking them to go and connect with them. So, you know, food is the the icebreaker. It's the the means by which we actually connect with other human beings. You know, well, and also so. food has a connection to cities, right? There are Absolutely. cities that are known for their food. Yeah. Um, or, or unique types unique of Unique types of yeah. food, right. Um, um, we've got a caller on the line. We have um, Leela, I think, and Brandon. I hope I'm saying that right. Leela, I'm going to put you on the line. He's got, she's got a question for Peter. Leela, you're on on the line. What's on your mind? You there? Maybe we answered her question. Here she is. Okay. 
Okay. I've been trying to be a visionary. In 2010, I did uh, Hillsborough Cures, which was a, a, a collaboration with Catholic Charities. Uh, 144 tiny cottages before tiny cottages were popular. I did uh, a back-to-work initiative um, architectural rendition for a back-to-work initiative for our felons coming out of prison. And I've been for 30 years trying to save an oak tree canopy that was planted approximately 52 years ago at the start of our 4th of July parade, where our 4th of July parade starts every year. And I have been frustrated with my relationship with my leaders in my community because it's like you said, it's usually basically our way or the highway. Mm. And um, it's very discouraging. And uh, they're about to, in our community, build a $25 million library that we don't need. We have a beautiful library on a lake right now in the center of Brandon. And it will destroy the corner. Um, beautiful vista that we are enjoying right now with the oak tree canopies mm. and the cleared land. And it's just like we have no spaces. We have infills with um, everything's being filled in. Leela, do you have a question for Peter? Yeah, just basically, you know, I know uh, you, you went a long way and where you came to to be, an, you know, um, more visual with your communities. What is your advice on how to deal with the people that are very dogmatic about seeing mm-hmm. naysayers on ideas? Yeah. And Leela, stay in the line because I have a question for you after Peter answers oh. you. Well, Leela, good on, good on you for keeping up and fighting the good fight. You know, hey, there's lots of stuff that we want to see happen, and we're not going to win every battle, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, trying to save a tree canopy, it's like saying, it's like, what is, you know, some crazy environmentalist? No, trees matter. You know, there, it's not just for shade, it's not just about the environment, it's about quality of life um, and all of that. And someone else is making in sort of an economic equations like well what's the value of that land if i take those trees away i could develop it etc etc here's the thing leela and remind folks of this it's like um everything has a cost true but things also have value and they have value beyond just the financial right and quality of life oftentimes resides in the value of things as opposed to the cost of things because some things are are expensive other things are really cheap. You know, if you have an existing tree canopy, that's pretty inexpensive, you know, relatively to, to maintain and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Remind people. But expensive to create. Expensive to create, really. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're going to redevelop the block money. and then we're going to put in, then we'll have to re-landscape everything. It's like, okay, I, 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 I get that. Uh, there, But I, I think, Leela, remind people that there is value beyond the purely financial. And if it's just about the pure financial accounting of things, then I think we're going to have a fairly sterile sort of um, uh, place to live. And I don't think that at heart, even those, you know, the, the penny pinchers and the ones who are watching every, you know, every dollar, I don't think that's the world they actually want to live in. And my question for you, Leela, is you're, you live in Brandon, correct? So I'm, I'm curious about Brandon and, and your sense of place there. What do you love about Brandon? And do you love living in Brandon? Is that a a place that you have an emotional connection to, as Peter talks about, having an emotional connection with the place that you live? I do have an emotional connection with it. And I did write an article for the St. Pete Times. I live here uh, back in 2004 about the Oak Tree Canopy. Mm. The fact that the 4th of July parade starts there and Immediately, I was fixed on the idea that it would be wonderful if our community would be allowed to throw picnic blankets in that oak tree canopy, mm-hmm. which was forbidden, you know, mm-hmm. for the parade. It just made no sense. It's like we need to be able to joy, joyfully gather and express our uh, communication skills with each other. And we have very limited places that we do that now because of social media. We kind of keep to ourselves and we isolate. 
Huh. So my main thought was this was a gathering connection with that canopy. And if you go into the canopy and just sit down in the canopy, there's a sense of solitude mm. that exists there that we need in our lives right now. And we're missing out on that solitude because we get so hurried up and rushed with the day-to-day things. So it is very close to my heart. Uh, when 9-11 happened, I thought, what better place to put a Twin Tower uh, memorial for those people, you know, the people that lost their lives and a reflecting pond for Pennsylvania and the base of the fountain and the shape of the Pentagon. You know, that would be very simple, but yet speak volumes about a pathway that we could walk on together and actually talk to our post-traumatic stress soldiers and actually let them have a gathering place for them, you know, that, you know, we're losing a soldier every 20 minutes in America. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so these are all very important things that we right. are losing sight of. Yeah, Peter has a Le- comment for Leo, you. Leo, I've got a suggestion for you. I can't believe that every, you know, person in the city government is saying no to these ideas because these there's obviously there's value to that. You need to find somebody inside the, you know, the, the, the government who, who so, someone on council who's, you know, receptive to the idea, someone in, in the parks department, someone in, you know, in a department that's willing to listen and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Find that champion and work with them mm-hmm. and make Maybe you can't do it as big as you'd like to in the beginning, but it's like there's got to be a way to do something small and temporary uh, there and start there. Find that one receptive ear and really work with them. Wait, well, thank you so much for the advice. You know, Lila, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, uh-huh. And Lila mentioned isolation. So that's interesting because we have an email from David Bryant and he says um, he wants to know, Peter, what you think about people being isolated in cities. Yeah. He says that it's tied back to mental illness sometimes for shut-ins, but it's ironic to think about shut-in folks being isolated when they are surrounded by people and fun things to do. He says, I think COVID made such isolation even worse. Yeah. So. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, there is an epidemic of loneliness in this country. They talk about it. It's tangible. You know, we are more technically connected uh, than ever before, yet somehow that technology is also isolating. You know, you see people sitting there having conversations on their phone, but they're sitting right next to somebody and their eyes are down and they're, you know, on their phone. There's not, there's, there is a, a different sense of human connection, you know, and all that. And that begs the question, what is the city's role in, in trying to encourage people to sort of get out of their homes and connect with each other? I think that it absolutely is. You know, cities play a role in the overall health and wellness of their um, their residents, and certainly mm-hmm. mental health has got to be part of that equation. So, I think that the city's role is to is to promote that idea. It's like, oh, let's get folks out of the house. Like, let's have great, you know, good parks systems. Let's have trails. Let's have events that actually are, you know, that, yep. that bring people out, and they might, you know, connect with them. They, they might make a friend. At, at the very least, they'll see something interesting. Or even better, this is a really simple one: people watching. As human beings, we are endlessly fascinated with each other, right? It's just, it's mm-hmm. baked into our DNA. We, we watch other people and are entertained by that. Well, how about we set up the idea of that uh, if, if cities increase the people watching, you know, quotient in their places. More like, sidewalk cafes. More sidewalk cafes. Right. Like benches. Just places to sit and watch. You know, dog parks are fantastic. It's like, you don't even have to own a dog. You can go and watch dogs playing and be incredibly entertained by something mm-hmm. like that. Outdoor so, markets. Uh, outdoor the Saint, markets. The St. Pete Market, the Saturday morning market, is a, a great place to. a fantastic love yeah. note. I've written yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so those kinds of things. Yeah. Yes. You can't, you know, force somebody to come out of their house, but you can make outdoors and make the whole thing seem more interesting. It's like, yeah, let's get out and, and, and maybe do something. We've got a couple other emails and phone calls. We've got an email from Eugene Beal, who just wants to note that he went to high school in Canton and law school in Akron. He was born in Youngstown. So oh, there, there you go. go. Another Florida transplant, um, Ohio transplant. That's a lot of us. And then we have JJ from Sarasota is on the line. Um, JJ, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Good morning. Good morning. I uh, was uh, 
smiling when one of your speakers talked about uh, bureaucrats. First line of defense is the word no. Right. And uh, I joined the public sector after 26 years in the private sector in the state capital in Maine uh, as business administrator for the city of Augusta. And our goal was to try to get to consensus and circle around yes. Right. And that seemed to work for public perception of uh, public officials. Uh, one of the things we face, even in Augusta, Maine, and I've been down here now for 15 years and I'm a Sarasota resident, and it's becoming quite common whenever I read any of the papers uh, from either Tampa, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Sarasota, affordable housing close to where people need services mm-hmm. that are usually at the lower end of the uh, pay scale. And, you know, asking people to drive 15 or 20 miles into the city of Sarasota to do uh, domestic work is becoming almost impossible. What can we as a community do to encourage more truly affordable communities, not just housing, but communities for these people uh, in the hearts of our city? Great question, and I it's hope you have question. an answer to that one, yeah, Peter. Yeah, it's a very tough question. Thanks it, for the call, JJ. It's not just, you know, uh, Tampa Bay. This is happening all over the country. Uh, housing is getting more expensive. It's true, especially in, you know, in the more in the, the more desirable a place becomes, it's, it's going to accelerate, you know, even more. You look at what's, you know, the, the prices of homes in Tampa Bay in the last five years or so. Skyrocketing. I get it. Part of it is a systemic challenge um, around zoning. You know, we're zoned for a lot of single-family homes, you know, mm-hmm. and, that, and if you're building exurbs and suburbs, like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Well, and that's the American dream, right? It was at one point. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, if we talk to the millennials and Zoomers now, is that the American dream? I think they have a different sort of sense of that, mm-hmm. or it's more diluted than that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so density, which used to be a bad word, now needs to be, it's like, we need to change that. Density ha- is, is needs to be seen as a good word, because all the things that we tend to like about cities come from density and this amalgamation of interesting things happening in a concentrated sort of area, mm-hmm. right? So part of it is zoning. So we, we, we need to rezone for more density. And that, you know, I know that scares a lot of people, but like St. Pete is going through this process right now of adding uh, in, in certain neighborhoods, allowing for accessory dwellings, you know, in single family homes. You can, you know, the, the garage apartment can certainly be done. Or you can actually um, uh, do things into like two or three or four unit uh, micro uh, apartments mm-hmm. and, and all that. You know, everyone's afraid of like, I'm afraid of a tower going in next to me. It's like, that's really not going to happen. That's, there's very limited places where that's going to happen. Unless you're already, you're living in that tiny home that's in the middle of a downtown and you're that one weirdo that won't sell. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then, then yes, uh, chances are you already have a tower around you. But so recognizing that density isn't a bad thing, that affordable housing is not a bad thing. It's like people think, oh, I'm going. it's like, what kind of people are going to move in next to me? It's like, well, they're probably your sons, your daughters. They're, you know, the newly minted, you know, college students who are trying, you know, still have student loans to pay and need an affordable place to live. They're the folks who are waiting tables at your favorite restaurant. Mm-hmm. They're those, the domestic, you know, the folks who are you know, cleaning houses who are taking care of the very essential things that, you know, all, all of us need. And yes, we're going to make them drive and, you know, and travel even further. It's like, no, this just doesn't feel right. You know, there. And so there, there's a group in St. Pete called, you know, the Yimbies, the Yes in My mm-hmm. Backyard. We have one in Tampa, too. They should. I mean, they're all over the place. It's recognizable. It's like, look, you know, uh, affordable housing and, you know, and this kind of stuff is not a bad thing. In fact, it's really valuable, you know, for places. And yes, you know, your change is coming uh, there. And I know change can be a little, you know, nerve wracking for a lot of people. 
Um, but it's not, you know, and, and too much of it is about fear, fear of change and fear of something different. Well, besides uh, uh, writing uh, books and your new novel, uh, you've also been a consultant to cities. Uh, what bit, cities yeah. uh, do you think are doing it right? Um, I'm going to be a bit of a homer. Um, I think St. Pete has been pretty amazing because I've lived there the longest and certainly I've seen that up close uh, there. You know, in terms of other things, I, I look at um, a lot of Rust Belt cities. And I, again, um, growing up in Ohio, there was a time when everyone thought Akron and Canton and Cleveland and Youngstown, they were, you know, and Detroit, circling the drains, like, you know. Armpit. Uh, I'd call them armpits. I would have. Well, been. Canton is still struggling. They've <laughs> lost uh, population every yeah. year for the last uh, well, 40 years. Most of those cities have lost population. But you got to remember, sort of, they were, you know, at the height of, you know, um, sort of America as, a, as a, an industrial right. sort of economy. That was the sweet spot. You know, you yeah. wanted to live in Youngstown and Cleveland and Detroit uh, there. So as the economy has changed, it's no surprise that, you know, people are, you know, that those places are, are shrinking. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're now becoming the size that they need to be for the type of city that they are today. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's, you know, so yes, everyone thinks that, you know, losing population, it's, it's a bad thing. It's like, well, it can be, you know. Um, well, you mentioned Detroit. So yeah. Detroit is a city that has Resurged, turned around, right? Yes. And still lost a lot of population from its height. Uh, Pittsburgh is another city Pittsburgh that has transformed. Example. That was a Rust Belt city that yeah. has reinvented itself. I think yeah. Cleveland also has Cleveland that Cleveland as well. You know, nary a smokestack in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania anymore. Right. It's all about green economy, uh, their university system, you know. Um, Technology. Uh, engineering, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes, credit, you know, Carnegie Mellon and places like that. But Detroit came back around because, um, you know, the, they still make cars there, certainly. But there's an incredible design um, uh, culture um, in Detroit. Uh, there is a, a Cran Cranberry, Cran what's the name of the... The, their their version of like the Ringling College of Art and Design okay, yeah. uh, is up there. And they've been producing amazing, you know, uh, designers, a lot around the, the auto industry, but certainly extending beyond that. Um, and when Detroit, you know, was at its lowest, the people, you know, the, the, the locals, the ones who do, who did love that city, they still hung in there. And I think in some ways they were one of the reasons why Detroit made it through mm -hmm. because there were people that still loved it. You know, uh, even if, you know, the, the media was blasting them and you know, a lot of, and you know, a lot of folks had lost their jobs. There were still locals who still loved the city and were still trying to do stuff for it. Well, how do you suppose St. Pete has done this? I, I'm very curious, since you singled St. Yeah. Pete out as having it done well, uh, is there? can you say one or two things that they have done well that has... Yeah. Um, they used to be known as God's waiting room. Yes. So. I think one of it is the, the arts and culture uh, in the city. Certainly, we have, a, we have some amazing museums. The, the Dali Museum is absolutely world-class, but we have other fantastic museums all throughout the, the city. But here's the thing, and I, I even wrote about this. It's like, if you think about it, technically, a museum is where art goes to die. And I say that with love. Don't mm -hmm. get mad at me. I love museums. They are incredible assets to communities. But it's not just about supporting museums because that's the easy thing to do. If you're a city, it's easy to support a museum because, again, those dead artists are very unlikely to complain about stuff. They're, they don't demand grants. They, they don't show up and do strange things that upset people. <laughs> no, but real artists are messy. Creative people don't follow all the rules. They don't conform to all of our notions of what, you know, how we'd like some stuff to do. So it's harder to support a creative community. But it's a essential to support a creative community. Um, I, have, I had a very good friend. His name was Herb Snitzer. He was a world-class mm -hmm. photographer. He just passed away a few months ago. And he sort of, you know, beat it into my head, you know, and talking with him many, many, you know, uh, times about this stuff, about how important it was 
that it's not just uh, about a city of the arts, but be a city for the artists. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, one of the things that St. Pete has done. The Warehouse well. Arts District. The Warehouse Arts District yeah, is phenomenal. Example, yeah. You know, and there are, there are, st- there are world-class artists, you know, there, like, you know, Duncan McClellan. Mm-hmm. But there's all, there's a whole gamut of, of new and upcoming artists who are doing stuff that's just amazing as well. Um, we got an email from Bubba, who um, I, I asked um, folks to tell us what they love about Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, or where, wherever they live. And Bubba says, I'm glad to be in Florida because it's so dynamic. I visited upstate New York and western Massachusetts recently and was sad to see how depressing it was in the old mill towns. No wonder DeSantis worshipers want to move here. Um, and then we have David from Northport has been patiently holding and waiting to um, speak. So David from Northport, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about, I guess this would be a public participation and local government uh, comment. Um, I live in Northport, which is in southern Sarasota County. It's actually the fastest growing part of Sarasota County. I moved here about 18 years ago. The population was about 38,000, and now it's over 80,000. We have in Northport a very unusual, unique ecological feature. It's called Warm Mineral Springs. Super cool place. Yeah, it's the only warm spring in Florida. It actually provides critical habitat for the manatees, Mm -hmm. and it's the only natural warm water um, uh, refuge for manatees in wintertime. And it's it's on a parcel that's 82 acres. Um, The city of Northport had a plan for it that was developed extensively through um, public uh, meetings. uh, It was called the 2019 Master Plan. And our uh, commission that's currently um, in office uh, about six months ago, just decided at a meeting to entertain a supposedly unsolicited P3. A P3 is a public-private um, partnership, yes. and these have their roots in actually large infrastructure projects like yep. I-595. So they're designed to be something where if a city doesn't have the resources and state statutes you know, say that it has to serve a clear public use. In any case, what they're proposing is to put a 250-room hotel and 300-plus condos on this property at the park, the 2019 master plan that was in place uh, developed with community input, something like seven public meetings, was entirely low impact. Um, you know, there was this out, small outdoor uh, event area, possibly primitive camping, restoration of a restaurant that used to be on site there, but all very, you know, low impact, not a multi-story hotel, multi-story mm-hmm. condos. And... The citizens in Northport, when they first learned about this back in January, showed up at the meeting. Over 50 people at that first meeting that were able to speak. And in the last meeting, which was two weeks ago, over 100 people, the entire um, the chambers was filled. It even had overflow. People had to sit in the room next door. And the response has been from the city manager and the commissioners that this is just a small group of people that don't represent the citizens. And I, I just find it frightening that we have such blatant um, disregard for public input. Um, for people to show up at a commission meeting, I'm not sure how involved people in St. Pete are, but in Northport, you might have three or four people at a right. regular meeting. A hundred is a so, good turnout anywhere, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Especially so in really, Northport, really that's really a huge that's percentage of the population. So are you saying they're going forward with that project despite the opposition? Well, they have to, they have to completely change the uh, comprehensive plan because this is codified in their, in their zoning as being basically open space recreation and it ties into their future use land map. Yeah. So they're going to basically alter their comp plan to do this because that's the only way they could change the density, the type of commercial development they're talking about on what was a park 
to do this. So there'll be at least two more meetings, two readings of those changes before they can do it. But one of the things that's happened now in the meantime is the city manager says, oh, well, since we want everyone's input, we're employing an outside agency to send out a random survey to representative population um, because that's statistically valid. And apparently all these people showing up at the meeting is somehow Do you have a question for Peter? My question is, in the face of things like State Bill 540, which actually makes it um, impossible for the average citizen to challenge a change to a comp plan, which is one of the only ways, uh, one of the only remaining ways we have to stop this ill-advised plan here, is, is what do you really do? I mean, I've, I've been acting as somebody who's really been organizing people to show up. Now, I figure I get 100-plus yeah. people in there, help get 100-plus people in there. They can't, in the face of all this opposition, five commissioners sit up there and just go, I don't care what the public says. So what, what do you think, so, Peter? What, what advice do you have for David? Thanks for the call, David. Well, Thank you. Keep fighting the good fight, obviously. Um, part of the challenge here is that, yes, uh, people show up at you know, um, council meetings. Uh, I've seen it. I've gone, I've gone, I've, I've spoken at those, but that's, part, you know, part of that is to, you know, yes, to get a, a, the, the feedback, you know, from folks uh, in the moment, but we also elect people for a reason to make decisions, sometimes to make hard decisions, sometimes to make unpopular decisions. And I don't know the full story of why they would be doing moving to a, a, a PPP. Uh, although I think I, it goes back to your original point about money. I think it does, yes. but it also may go back to it's like, well, look, he said it's 80-some acres. I'm not familiar with that, but I suspect part of it might be to ma- in order to maintain the vast majority of it, we need to have revenue in order to do that. And maybe that's the trade-off that they're trying to do. I, I, again, I don't know, and I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of comment on that, but I would point out that, um, yes, there, there's got to be, you know, when you go to a public hearing, yeah, yes, that's part of it, but it comes down to elections. My guess is that they know, see this vacant land with that could be a tourist attraction and attract more people. You go there now, it's a really bucolic, beautiful, quiet place with a lot of people from Eastern Europe that are seeking those mineral waters and they just see this massive piece of land that why not let's look at the design it's like are you talking about putting a hotel right on top of that or no i suspect it's probably something that's much more right. remote to that but and then people may want to live there but it might be at the outskirts again i suspect it it probably has to do with trying to balance preserving the majority of it and f- having the funds in order to do that yeah right. um, um so we'll be right back with uh, more from Peter Kageyama, urbanist and author, right after uh, this uh, station break. WMNF 88.5 FM presents Tropical Heat Wave at the Cuban Club in Ybor City, May 6th this year. Check us out at WMNF.org. Virtual tickets on sale now. Forty dollars in advance, fifty at the door at the Cuban Club. And we're back with Peter Kageyama, urbanist and author. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can give us a call eight one three two three nine nine six six three or send us an email at dj at wmnf org. We'd love to hear from you. What do you love about your city? Peter's the author of For the Love of Cities that talks about having an emotional relationship with the place that you live. So we want to know what kind of emotional relationship do you have with the, the place that you live? Um, so, Peter, we've been talking a lot about your work on cities, but you also now um, are have published a novel yes. um, called um, Hunter's 
point, yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. How did you come to move from yeah. writing um, nonfiction to um, writing this, this work of detective fiction yeah. set in San Francisco, this, another interesting city? Yes, uh, this was my other COVID project. So COVID was an extraordinary time for all of us. Um, and hopefully, you know, you found some silver lining in that kind of uh, dark kind of crappy cloud. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I had the opportunity to work on two books. I did the 10 year anniversary for the love of uh, cities, uh, for love of cities revisited. And I kind of got the writing bug uh, back. And what was interesting is if you'd asked me three years ago, it says, are you a writer? It's like, well, I'm a speaker who occasionally writes. I mean, four books in 10 years is not Stephen King-esque um, <laughs> there. But I did get inspired. You know, sometimes they, they do say writers are readers. And sometimes, you know, the things you read get you really motivated. Mm -hmm. And I read this fantastic book about the Japanese-American experience during World War II. It was nonfiction. Non uh, They're called Facing the Mountain. Highly recommended. And it read like a really great novel. And this was all of the information that, frankly, my father and my aunts and, you know, and that generation that they never told us. They never talked about their experience. Because your, your father, his sisters and yeah. parents were all in a Japanese yeah. internment camp yes. in uh, Utah, I think. Uh, yes, they yeah. went, Topaz was the name of that camp. So, yeah, my dad was 15 years old um, in uh, early 1942 when uh, uh, FDR signed the, the Japanese-American Exclusionary Act. And all the folks on the west coast of the United States, about 100-mile-wide swath, had to, had to be moved out into essentially American concentration camps. Uh, and there. where were they living at that time? San Francisco. Yeah. So I have this long-term connection with San Francisco uh, there, which was part of what kind of got me excited about that. But I thought about what, a, you know, and then the, the interesting thing about that is that most of these Japanese Americans, these young men, they volunteered to serve in the army and they served with incredible distinction. You know, they, they weren't allowed to um, fight in the Pacific. They were part of a, an all Nisei, all Japanese American, second generation Japanese American um, unit in Europe called the 442nd. And they are, remain like the most decorated combat unit in U.S. Army history. Hmm. They call them the Purple Heart Brigade because there were wow. so many Purple Hearts, a lot of Congressional Medals of Honor. And they really, they, had, they felt, it seemed like they were trying to prove something. And I thought, what a great sort of background for a character. Um, in, in all of this. And this idea of this kind of character starts to foment and like the, and again, San Francisco has always been an interesting place. It's like, okay, what would happen if, you know, 10, 15 years beyond the war, what would this guy be doing? And of course, then this story starts to evolve and I start researching more about San Francisco at the time. And I learned interesting little tidbits. Like, did you know Vertigo was filmed in San Francisco in late, you know, in mid-1957. It's like, oh, that, would start, that started out sort of being the, maybe the basis for the story. It, it evolved well beyond that. It's, it's but, a beautiful film. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a so fantastic many, yeah, film. It's and incredible. It's, and the way Hitchcock shoots the, the city is yeah. kind of a love note to the city. It's mm -hmm. like this, these long, elegant shots, and you just see this, yeah, yeah, San Francisco at the time was a very interesting place. Why a detective novel? Because well, that, that seems like such a departure. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it's, it, the trope exists for a reason. It's like, you know, you could write about accountants, you know, and maybe dentists and no offense to that. But weird stuff doesn't happen to accountants and dentists on a regular basis. But weird stuff seems to happen to private detectives. And so in a, inherently the trope is that, you know, the, the private detective is a lot more flexible in all this. Plus, I just kind of figured that uh, a, a guy who was very good, you know, he was a scout with um, uh, the 442nd. He's very capable and smart and clever. Um, he might not fit into some particular mold uh, there. And so, yeah, seemed like private detective. Again, seemed more interesting to write about than maybe a dentist. But I'm curious, you said your family didn't really talk about their experiences no. in the camp. But what did you learn about their experiences? In other words, was it, was it hellish? Was it, was it, how difficult was it? 
Some would say yes. I think it, yeah. it, it varied. I mean, there were people who were killed, you know, outright murdered uh, there. Um, but if you were uh, by, Japanese on the East Coast, you were not sent to concentration camps. Well, it was tricky. You were required to be moved out of the, the exclusionary zone on the West Coast. But if, let's say, you were living, you know, here in, in Tampa, and there's a Japanese, you know, American family who's living there, if the community thought, you know, Kageyama looks a little suspicious, then they could say, we think he should go. And they were off, you know. So, yes, they would, yeah, they would be relocated out of that. Now, fortunately, there was a, a lot of people who did speak up for, you know, their fellow citizens, and these were citizens for the most part. If you were born here, you're not, you know, you were a citizen uh, there. So, yes, it was not required, but it was common. It did happen. Well, Tom asked what it was like. And I think one of the things that is, comes up in the book, too, was that younger people established relationships. I think yes. the, the lead character That's, in there, two of the lead characters in there met yeah, in the in internment camp. camp. Yeah. yeah. That is one thing that I did learn from my father. Again, my dad's generation didn't talk about this stuff. They were sort of, it's almost like they were sort of collectively embarrassed about it. It's like, look, it happened. Let's move on. You know, and that was sort of their mantra about that. But as a kid observing, you know, your, your parents, you know, there, I did note that the friends my dad made in camp, and he was 15 years old when he went into camp at the mm -hmm. time, he made lifelong friends there. These were the folks that he was most bonded to. His two best friends there. I'm named after one of them. Hmm. And actually, my character, Katz Takamoto, is actually named after um, an amalgam of the two of them. Peter Matsumoto uh, and Masa Takatoshi. Takemoto. So that's okay. where the name came from in oh, honor wow. of my dad's friends. Now, you have a, a photograph of your father um, mm -hmm. as he was being sent off to the camp yeah. that was taken by famous photographer Dorothea Lange, yes. who is best known for her photographs of the folks escaping the Dust Bowl. Migrant mother. Migrant mother, yes. migrant mother. Um, how did you come across that photo? Did you know yeah. that it existed? And you, I just want to tell everybody that you actually recreated the photo with you in that position yeah. where you're, this exact place where yeah, the photo was taken. Yeah, it's on my website if you want to see it. Amazingly, yeah. the building hadn't been destroyed. No, it's so. this, you know, this <laughs> on Van Ness Boulevard. Because yeah, so, it's part of the National Archive, so how did is. you even find that? Um, I think my aunt found it, you know, 20 years ago or something like that. It was there. I don't think my father ever saw it. Again, he's 15 years old he's standing there with two suitcases and he's sort of looking over his right shoulder with this kind of like very stunned. apprehensive stunt you know almost a stunned look uh on his face and i know in that moment that is the worst day of his life because he doesn't know what's going to happen doesn't really understand what's going on uh there and i did find lisa my my wife lisa and i found that place uh when we went out to san francisco last year for some research and i recreated that photo and it's actually on my uh my website um peterkageyama.com uh, there and that photo, I use that as a as a moment in the story. I took that moment and instead of Dorothea Lang taking the photo of my father, in the book I have her taking that of this young Japanese American who is my character, Kat Takamoto. Mm -hmm. And there a thing evolves beyond that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the nexus between your work um, on cities and your the book? Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of elements in the book that seem to me kind of highlight that just even the yeah. title of the book hunter's point is about really a really bad <laughs> part of san francisco so san yeah. francisco a development bad urban development yeah. um well part of it is uh when I wrote about San Francisco, I wanted to write about it in a way that felt real and authoritative. And folks, somebody who lived there or, or knew the city would go, oh, yeah, he, he knows you know, his city. And I, um, I, know San, I knew San Francisco well enough. My father eventually retired back out there. So I would go visit him you know, for the last decade of his life uh, once or twice a year. And we always made it into San Francisco. He's in East Bay. But 
Yes, to write about a city, to especially, think about it. There's certain cities that have sort of this mystique to them. You just say the word, you say the word Paris, or New York, mm-hmm. or London. And so I think San Francisco is one of them. You see oh, yeah. that, the oh, water and that fog shrouded, oh, yeah. you know, sort of thing. It's a perfect setting for sort of a detective kind of uh, stuff uh, there. And, you know, the fascinating thing is in the late 50s and into the 60s, there was some amazing stuff going on in San Francisco. So that's, as a writer, that was a great way to you know, to, to, to play against that. So you mentioned the, the beat poetry scene was, was thriving in the late fifties, you know, there. So that became so you have an Jack integral. Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. Yeah. Are, and are Allen in there. Ginsberg in there. Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. And then you talk about the city lights bookstore yeah. in there. That plays a, a key role. It does because it actually played a key role in the, in sort of the history of San Francisco at the time. So I write about Allen Ginsberg and whatnot, but um, Ginsberg wrote this poem called Howl. And most people don't know the poem, but they know the first line of the poem. It's like, it's the line that says, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's it's basically one long sentence. It's an epic poem. It is an epic poem. So that book, uh, his poem was published by City Lights Bookstore, which is this amazing independent bookstore, still exists. It's still part of the, uh, the creative community there in San Francisco. So City Lights publishes this book. And in 1957, a Japanese-American bookseller by the name of Shig Morao, Shigeyoshi Morao, uh, has the unfortunate distinction of selling that to an undercover cop and getting arrested for selling uh, obscenity. And they all go to trial and all this stuff. And eventually they, they win. Um, you know, free, First Amendment free speech wins out. Yay. Um, but <laughs> Shig Morao, because he was a Japanese-American, thought, huh, that would be a very interesting character to include in this. And actually what happened was Shig became... Katz's best friend. He was that guy that they met in camp, and so that's the story. They meet in camp, they become best friends. A little unlikely, because Katz is, you know, sort of outgoing and athletic. Shig is more bookish and a little more introverted, but they bond together, because that's what, you know, that's what happened. And so uh, Shig is this sort of fantastic sort of foil uh, in all this, and I think he was a, he's been a great sidekick, and I absolutely loved writing about him, because he was a real guy, and mm-hmm. he really, he was the store manager for, for City Lights in its heyday. And he, yeah. So are uh, would you call those love notes to San Francisco that you've written that you have interspersed so. throughout the book? I hope so. I, for the folks who who know San Francisco or you know either live there or even you know feel an affinity for it, it's like oh yeah, City Lights Bookstore, you know, or um, uh, Vesuvio, this really famous bar that happens to be across the alley from uh, City Lights, where all of these luminaries have you know have drank and you know, had you know, amazing experiences there. And then the North Beach area, Chinatown, places like that, that, you know, it's like, yeah, this is, this makes the city feel real. And that as an urbanist, I felt like I had to write about it in a real way. And of course, San Francisco has uh, serious challenges right now. It does. The, the huge homeless population yes. there that seems to be out of control. And there's a whole narrative that has uh, been created by uh, the right wing that San Francisco is a hellhole. And in fact, on Twitter, someone replied to a tweet I had about you liberals going to turn Tampa into New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. And I'm like, that would be nice. <laughs> I, I'll yeah. take that. Yeah. I'll take either any of those three cities. But yeah. what, what do you think now about what's going on in San Francisco? Well, it, yes, it is, a, it is absolutely challenging. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to see that, you know, um, you, know, op- you know, drug use just open, open. and apparent yeah. and mental illness on, uh, on very much display. And if anything, what you could, you know, the, you could accuse, you know, uh, I guess liberals and progressives about that is uh, trying to care a bit too much and maybe being uh, maybe too permissive on all this. We went, to, you know, maybe too far. I, I don't know. You know, there, there, there are reasons for that. And I, you know, we could do a whole show on yeah. sort of how that sort of ends up. Um, but the thing is like, all right, 
we're in the situation like how do we what are we going to do to sort of extricate ourselves san francisco is one of the most is i think is actually the most expensive city uh in, in the world mm -hmm. that's a huge challenge and i think they yeah. have rent control so and they do have rent control and, yeah. the, and part of the reason why they have the they have uh, the homeless is because they have rent control so there's you know these weird huh. believers it's like i'm trying to pull this but it's actually affecting you know you might that. want to explain that just a little bit of it why would rent control lead to that uh, well problem? because okay so yeah. a lot of it you know the tenderloin is the most sort of yes. Infamous district there in San Francisco. Most of the tenderloin are all these historically preserved buildings, these old SROs. They call them single room occupancy hotels. They're probably six, eight, ten stories tall. Uh, they're single room. You know, they're like almost like dormitory style living. Now in the 40s, 50s, 60s, these were this was workforce housing. Mm -hmm. But because they are historically uh, significant, they aren't. You, know, you can't tear them down, so you can't build new stuff that might actually lower the prices. That might actually allow that, and nobody wants to refurbish them because there's not a whole lot of value to that. So they consequently they become kind of tenements within that and they become very inexpensive and where do you suppose the homeless and you know and the and, and sort of the, the folks are there they're going to gravitate towards that so yes in that sense um you know uh, rent control and historic preservation two historically progressive ideas have contributed to this sort of significant problem we're talking to author and urbanist Peter Kageyama. His latest book is a detective um, fiction book called Hunter's Point, set in San Francisco. And Peter, where can people get that book? How can they find it? Uh, it's available at Tombolo, sort of over in St. Petersburg. It's available through, you can order it through your favorite independent local bookstore. Of course, it's available as an ebook uh, as well on Amazon. And I'm very excited that within probably the next week or two, the audio version will be out uh, as well. And are you, is this going to be a series? Are you going to bring it back is. this character? Oh, are you working on I love writing one? about these characters. In fact, book two is done. It's with the editors right now. Oh, wow. Uh, actually, well, you say it's done. We'll see what the editors say. <laughs> well, yes, I'm sure there's a few uh, commas and punctuation uh, <laughs> things that need to be uh, sort of moved in there. But yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this. Um, yeah, uh, in fact, I'm thinking November is what uh, I'm, I'm working with St. Petersburg Press. You know, on, Some of the on same characters well. are going to reappear? The same main characters same will be back in the same setting a little bit further in time. So I think it's actually going to be San Francisco in 1959. Um, there. Any, any development deals focusing in? Uh, you know, I'm gonna, you know, spoilers. So, but it's there will be a, there is a, a significant government conspiracy going on. Surprise, surprise! But, it, <laughs> but the crazy thing is, is it actually happened? So yeah. Um, let's circle back a little bit though to uh, in our last few minutes um, to something that back to talking about cities uh -huh. and placemaking. Um, you wrote a piece about the redevelopment of the Tropicana site, and mm -hmm. you were calling for a plan that would heal old wounds and yes. be accessible to people regardless of income or ability. Um, do you have any indication that that will be part of the vision? What do you What do you see coming out of the ground now, and what do you think about what the plans are that are going right. forward? Well, it's unfortunately, it's kind of gone into sort of a closed closed door sessions right now between the city and the Rays. You know, they have to come to what's called a use agreement. Basically, uh, if they're going to move forward, the Rays have to you know agree commit to being in St. Pete for X number of years, like the original agreement, the one that kept mm -hmm. them there, you know, keeps them there for 30 years that expires in 2027. So that's the first and foremost thing. And I know Mayor Welch is absolutely committed to the idea of you know uh, of affordable housing and being supposedly 23 percent workforce housing in that project. 
there's, I read that. I don't yeah, know if that's accurate, but there's a lot of. It's uh, a lot. Well, but there's a lot of gray area. It's like, well, what is, is workforce it, housing? Well, yeah. yeah, that's part of it. But where they're going to put it? There was some of the the development groups wanted. It's like, well, twenty three percent. But we're gonna we'll, we'll put credits so you can do it in this part of town as opposed to you know this really prime real estate here in the heart of downtown. So there's a bit of that. But I do believe that because there has been so much attention around this, and again, uh, I think the mayor invested so much political capital in vocalizing the. This, the importance of this being a fair and equitable development. He said over and over again, that was how what he led with. It will be the most fair and most equitable development in the country. And it's one of the largest development projects in the country as well. So it has to be uh, there. Hmm. Otherwise, he's absolutely setting himself up for... Yeah, for, for trouble. And I, I can't resist, as I'm on the board of Walk Bike Tampa, so when I have yeah. somebody who knows about city planning come in, I like to ask them about transportation and transportation infrastructure and what does that mean to placemaking yeah. and, and cities? What do you think about, you know, infrastructure yeah. and active transportation and what kind of transportation infrastructure makes for a great yeah. city? Well, most of the time you say transportation infrastructure, immediately people think about roads, you right. know, uh, highways and all that stuff. Or are they thinking about light rail? It's like, of course, those are part of it. But transportation infrastructure is also bike lanes. It's sidewalks. It's alternatives to, you know, the car. It could be a scooter, an electric bike, a skateboard. All of that has to be part of the way we think about transportation mm-hmm. uh, there. And I think we're moving beyond this idea that of transportation as, you know, it's like it, it being so car centric. Right. And that's one of the most important things about, you know, uh, being a bike friendly or being a, 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 a bike think, uh, thinking forward about bikes. Because bikes say it's not just about the car. And too much of our city design has historically been dictated by the auto engineer, by the car engineers, you know, the mm-hmm. traffic engineers to getting in their jobs to get cars from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Everything else be damned. Right. Well, we're the everything else that be damned in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yes, you can create a, a system that's perfect. It's good for cars, but terrible for people. And in many ways, that's what we've built. And now we're trying to undo that. You know, through things like, you know, walkable cities and, you know, more bike lanes and, and alternatives to transportation. And I have to say, I've seen a lot of progress in Tampa and St. Pete. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing to go to St. Pete and see that um, uh, BRT, the yes. bus rapid transit, yeah. next to the wide sidewalk, next to a bike lane, next to a road. And it's just like, wow, is wow. this is this St. Petersburg? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing is happening in Tampa. There, um, The city of Tampa has a great mobility department with mm-hmm. people who are really believers and are reimagining the city. Yeah, mobility, that's the better way to put it. Yes. St. Pete has grown organically, block by block, store by mm-hmm. store. Do you think, are you concerned at all about this master plan idea? Um, no, because I think you do have to have a master plan. It's like you're putting brackets on sort of the, the stuff that's like you're, we're, we're trying to do. But I think there's still, there's so much more flexibility built into the idea of a master plan than most people sort of want to give credit to. They, they, they look at master plan and they think, you know, the government's going to run everything. It's like, no, the government's going to say you can do this. Well, here's the broad picture. You guys figure out the details. And that's where the. Well, we've the kind genius. of changed what our concept of master planning is too, because yeah. the master plan community used to be Tampa Palms. Yes. And now our master plan community is Water Street in Tampa, Water Street in yeah. Gas. Works, which are yeah. very much lots of people watching yes. you can do in Water Street now. It's an amazing place. Yep. We are out of time. It's been great. Thank you for being with us, Peter. My thanks pleasure. to all of our callers and listeners. Thanks to DJ Spaceship. Thanks to John. This is WMNF Tampa.